0: So this morning, uh, Pastor Keith is not here. He's on vacation. He'll be out the next three weeks. And so during this three weeks, Pastor Charlie and I will be doing uh, just a short three-week series that we've titled uh, Our Superior Power in Christ. Part of the reason for this series is, at least in my eyes, coming out of the the uh, Doctrine of Salvation series that I taught downstairs uh, in ABF in January and February. Uh, I had eight weeks uh, in which to teach the whole doctrine of salvation, and I can't fit it all in in eight weeks. I normally do it in 12 weeks, and I teach it uh, at a different time. And so I I, I had to cut certain things, and I didn't get to spend as much time uh, on certain topics, and this gives me the opportunity. I'll I'll preach this morning, and then Charlie's next week, uh, and then I'll wrap things up uh, in two more weeks from now. And the issue that I want to address today is the issue of sin. Sin. And so I'm going to jump right in and ask a question that I'm guessing everyone in here has wrestled with at some point in their life, maybe even especially this week. What goes through your heart? What goes through your mind when you see newspaper headlines of people committing or being accused of horrific crimes? What do you think? What goes on in your heart? If you look at online comments, you can figure out how other people feel about it. What's going on in their thoughts and in their hearts. The online section of uh, Facebook or Lancaster Online or any newspaper, if it has a comment section, if you want to read some of the worst things that human beings are capable of writing, I think it's probably in the comment section. It's... It's awful. But you'll, you'll see the full spectrum of how people will respond when they see human beings committing heinous crimes. There's sadness. There's anger. There's cynicism in there. There's fear. But I'll tell you what I see a lot of. Disgust. There's a lot of disgust when it comes to the crimes that we see people committing. This past week, uh, Bill Cosby was convicted of sexual abuse. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do with Bill Cosby? I grew up watching the Cosby show. We watched it, I don't know, every night. It's a big memory from me in the 80s. Fat Albert, I remember his comedy special. I, I mean, I thought he was funny. I thought he was generous. I thought he was a good dad. Tell me, what am I supposed to think of Bill Cosby today in 2018? I mean, there's a growing list of people that we're forced to reckon with. Like, who are these people? Harvey Weinstein kind of kicked it off for us. Kevin Spacey followed it up. Louis C.K. We've got Al Franken. I just saw Tom Brokaw, Garrison Keillor, Matt Lauer. The names just seem to keep on rolling out, and the question remains. I wonder if just to think about this. Part of us is thinking, how could this happen? How could this happen? What could have been done? What could, have, what could we have done? And maybe it's not just personal sins, but maybe we we're looking sort of broad-scale things when we look at the newspaper of headlines of school shootings or vans mowing down people or bombings. we are supposed to think about the people who commit those types of things? We can go back in history. What are we supposed to think about people who orchestrated the Rwandan genocide, the Soviet gulags? What are we supposed to think about the atrocities that happened in the Holocaust? What are we supposed to think about the people who committed these things? How could this happen? What could we have done? And I'm not even just thinking big scale things. I think all of us, in some ways, experience real personal. Uh, micro-tragedies. When I see my nephew, this sweet, blonde-haired boy, melt down into a teary-eyed, snotty-nosed mess, there's a part of me that's thinking, how could this happen? (laughs) How could he, who is so sweet, be capable of such horrific uh, meltdowns? And maybe you're, you've asked those questions of yourself. How is it possible that I could have done what I've done? If you've ever regretted anything, if you ever have, if you've ever regretted anything, you know that you can find yourself in spots where you're asking yourself, how could I have done something so stupid? What could I have done? These questions are perennially asked by the world the world every generation has to wrestle with what do we end up doing with the problem of evil in the world and so we have psychologists who will put together experiments put together terms and theories of what explains the human psyche you might recognize carl jung's shadow or freud's id we've got philosophers who try to wax i guess philosophy on what explains the human condition? What, is it, what does it mean to be human? Theologians do the same thing. And what I find interesting is that artists end up taking these conceptions, these maybe answers to the problems of evil in the world, and, and they end up depicting it for us and, and sort of put it right in front of our face, begging for us to ask the question, How could this have happened? What could have done? So I've got uh, a picture here. Um, This is a a portrait. I guess you could say it's a portrait uh, that uh, one of our own did. It's a Christ looking at Peter. This This is a powerful image for me because it's forcing me to recognize the look in Jesus' eyes as he looks at Peter. You can see Jesus being pulled away Peter's around the campfire. We know, if you have a bit of a Bible background, what probably happened not too long before that. Peter just denied Jesus three times, and Jesus in this scene. I don't know if Jesus did this in real life, but the power of Jesus' look, and Peter, you're, everyone in here is being forced to ask, how is it possible that Peter, the leader of the disciples, would deny Jesus. I love art for the possibility for us to wrestle with things. It doesn't always get as heavy as this um, Star Wars, does it? Doesn't it? It forces you to ask the question, you know, what happened in Anakin Skywalker to produce Darth Vader? Sorry if you didn't know that that happens, but it does. And the TV show Breaking Bad, I don't know that I recommend it, but it is a powerful TV series that shows the transformation of a vanilla, well, Walter White high school chemistry teacher who through five seasons becomes a drug lord kingpin. And you think, how did that happen? What could have been done to stop that? In the literature, we've got stories like Frankenstein. What, what can be done to transform the monster into a human? These are questions that I want us to wrestle with because in some ways, you need to decide from a biblical perspective how you're going to answer those questions because there are voices in the world that will try to tell you what you're supposed to think about Evil. The movies, they're all preaching a message to you. And what I find interesting is that all of these stories, so Star Wars, Breaking Bad, l- let's do s- something else. Let's look at two Disney movies, Pinocchio and uh, Frozen. Did you know that both Pinocchio and Frozen are helping its audiences to understand what to do when we face temptation? Yeah. So if you can think back to the, oh gosh, uh, 1941. 1941 version of Pinocchio. Pinocchio's a little boy. He says, I want to do what's right. And uh, he's got this little cricket, which is conscience, and the cricket gives Pinocchio some advice when he is tempted to do what's wrong. What's he say? You know what? Give a little whistle. Yeah, give a little whistle. Yep. Always let your conscience be your guide. And they sing a song about it. Elsa sings a song too. Did you know this? Uh, When she realizes her capacity to do, well, when she uh, realizes her capacity for power and she realizes that her parents have locked her away, she escapes. She sings a song. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I won't sing it but let it go. She sings a song, let it go. No, ro- no, no uh, right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free is what she exclaims. I'm going to let it go. Even the, the superhero movies. Uh, I think that it's interesting to compare um, like a, a modern version of The Incredible Hulk to an older story, uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are a lot like Bruce Bannister and the Hulk, are they not? If, 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 you, if you're familiar with the stories, both uh, Dr. Jekyll and Bruce Banner are scientists where the science experiment has gone very wrong. And now, as a result, they find that they are capable of committing tremendous evil. What are we going to do about it? How can it be stopped? They have different answers. I I don't want to spoil, if you've not read them, I I won't spoil it, but one chooses an option that hates evil. One chooses an option that tries to harness it for good. Now I want to think, what are we supposed to do? I don't want to rely on culture. Culture is going to provide us with a map and a mirror. It's a mirror in that it's going to reveal to us who we are. And it's a a map in that it's telling us where to go. Culture is both a map and a mirror. The map to tell us how we ought to act. The mirror to tell us who we are. If we are blind audiences who just absorb culture without discerning it at all, what kind of messages we're receiving, I think that's unwise. I'm not going to call for a ban of Disney, I'm not going to trash Disney, or we're not going to burn books at Keystone uh, but I want us to be discerning when it comes to how we define what is true and what's not true I don't want us to rely on culture's definition, particularly when it comes to the human nature to be our guide and so I want us to turn to the scriptures if you would, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4 we're jumping into the very beginning of beginnings, are we not? Well, not the beginning of the beginning. That was a few chapters earlier. But, I mean, creation is very new. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God is creating all things. Adam and Eve married. Chapter 3, Eve uh, sins. Adam and Eve sin. Fall away from God. God promises a Savior, but he still kicks them out of Eden. And we're going to meet up with Adam and Eve here. Um, in chapter 4. Let me read it for us. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs of his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know. Cain responded. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guardian? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And pray for us as we examine God's word together. Lord, we need your help. Lord, we understand that you tell us that your word is profitable for us. It's helpful for us to understand how to live lives of obedience and good works. God, I'm asking you to help us as a church, us as a body of believers, to understand what it means to be human. Lord, I pray that your spirit would meet us and open our eyes to our own hearts this morning. I pray, Lord, that the truth that you convey to us would shape us. And we need your power to do it. So, Lord, guide us here in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is a story of firsts. We've got Adam and Eve, first people on the planet, and then first parents on the planet. Imagine that, first parents on the planet, no grandparents to babysit, no no books to read on parenting. They're just trying to figure things out. Maybe you know what that feels like new parents, just trying to figure things out. And we've got the first, at least in this, what the scriptures give us, the first two sons, Cain and Abel. The first naturally born people. I mean, these are the ones who are fully human, you know, because Adam was created out of the dust, Eve out of Adam's rib. Cain is the first naturally born person on, he's the first person with a belly button, might be the one way to say it. He's the first person to be born even post-sin entering into the world. So he, in my eyes, is different than Adam and Eve. First two brothers trying to figure out how to live together in the same house, how to figure out a career, which job to go into. And then we also have the first murder. Chapter 4 of the Bible. And I want us to sit in that for a bit and just consider that the first born human being on planet earth is a murderer. Like if, if you've grown up in the church like you recognize, yeah yeah, Cain killed Abel. Uh-huh. I know that. But what? Cain, Adam and Eve's first born son, killed, murdered his brother. What are this have to do with that? Maybe, maybe the question to ask is, who do you want to blame? Might be the way to answer the question. Who do you want to blame? Do you want to blame Adam and Eve for this? I mean, you might be able to. I mean, that's often a thing that we do when we see other crimes committed. We want to put blame on the parents, yeah? Well, they probably didn't discipline him enough. Or maybe they disciplined him too much. You know? Maybe they didn't train him up in the... Maybe they, maybe they didn't give him the right kind of baloney to eat and he got certain chemicals that went to his brain and now, it, it, let's blame the parents. Parents have a hard job. Maybe you want to blame the parents. Maybe you want to blame Abel. Yeah? If you have a younger brother or a younger sibling of some kind, doesn't that make sense? I mean, sometimes don't they deserve it? If you, do you want to blame Abel? I mean, maybe Abel just was a spoiled, rotten brat. The scripture doesn't say, and so I don't want you to, to think that he was. But maybe he was. Maybe, maybe you want to blame Abel for it. Maybe, maybe every stinking thing that Abel did, it just turned out right. He was better looking. He got the better choice of a wife, which weren't many options, but he got the best pick. Maybe, maybe everything he did, he succeeded. Maybe he was wealthier, had more herds, maybe he had more children, or whatever it is. Everything just sort of went, goes right for Abel, and so maybe he deserves it. Who wants to blame God in this picture? Say, well, God, I think the reason that Cain killed Abel is because he felt rejected, um, and, and so it was unfair for you to not accept Cain's gift. Maybe God did something wrong, or maybe just, you know, it was Cain. He was a bad egg. There are some people who think that Cain is actually the uh, son of Satan himself, as if uh, as if Satan copulated with Eve to produce uh, some monster offspring, spawn of Satan. Scriptures don't say that, by the way. But maybe maybe Cain was just a rotten egg. To examine what I think is going on, we're going to look under three headings for this morning. Uh, The first heading for us is Cain's gift. And so let's look at Cain's gift. Trying to understand how could Cain have committed murder? What could we have done? How could this have happened? What could we have done? Well, let's look at some evidence in this mystery that we have. Well, let's look at the gift. How does the scriptures describe the gift? Well, when it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord— And also brought, uh, Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs of the flock. Okay. On the surface, I don't think there's anything wrong with either sacrifice. You know? They're bringing gifts to God, yes? Cain and Abel, both bringing gifts to God. You know, Cain is not raising Cain, by himself, out in the field, smoking whatever weeds he can find. He's not the bad kid. I mean, this is a, Cain is one of the brothers who's bringing a gift to God. Let's not just immediately say he's a bad guy. Let's just consider for a moment. He would have been at church. He would have been worshiping. He would have been bringing his gifts and tithe, offering his, he might have been a volunteer. Both. Now, there must have been something wrong with his gift. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's because God, uh, God is on the ketogenic diet and he can't eat grains. You know? It's not that God likes meat. He hates vegetables. We'll find out later on. Uh, Moses prescribes when you make a gift to the Lord, uh, whether you bring an animal or whether you bring a grain sacrifice, it's fine. It has nothing to do with the type. What I do think And I I think that the the passage here will point to us. I think there's an issue of quality when it comes to Cain's gift. I think God is concerned with the quality of the gifts that we bring to him. Take a look. Verse 4. How does the passage describe Abel's gift? Abel's gift was the best of the first. The best of the first. How does it describe Cain's gift? What did Cain bring? Some. The best of the first versus some. And so both bring a sacrifice, but there might be a difference in the quality of the sacrifice that's made. I sometimes hear a phrase around the church that is upsetting to me. And I have roots to think that it's upsetting based on a passage like this. I hear sometimes, not everyone, by, by no means everyone, but occasionally I'll hear something like this. Well, it's good enough for the church. What's well, good enough for the church. Somebody's volunteering, doing some work, doing some, I don't know, I'm making it up, landscaping. And they say, oh, well, you know, it's good enough for the church. And what I hear them saying in that is, church doesn't deserve my best. I would never accept this kind of quality in my own house. If I was working for another client, I would never uh, do this kind of work for a client. But you know what? For the church, it's good enough. And what I want to say is, it's not though. Like, it's not good enough. Because when we're giving gifts to the church, we're not giving gifts to the church, we're giving gifts to God. And I think Abel gives us a good model here. That when we give gifts to God, we should give good gifts that are the best and first. The best And the first. So I'll just ask, you know, what kind of gifts do you give God? Do you give God from your best? Or do you give gifts maybe like Cain, the the leftovers? You just give some, whatever's left over. Question for us to consider. Now, I don't think it's just the fact that there's a quality difference. I also think that there is something going on in Cain's heart. Um, And I've got this passage here in Hebrews 11.4 that I think is hinting at Uh, another aspect of what separates Cain's gift from Abel's. Hebrews 11.4 shines this light and says, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice to God than Cain did. It was by faith. Okay. I think there's a truth that I want to draw out in here. Um, That it's possible to provide even a good gift but if it's done so with some sort of non-faith motive, that God might not accept it. That God is concerned not just about the quality of the gift, but the character of the giver. That our motivation matters. That God is after more than just obedience. He's after the heart of the one who should be obeying. God God is not after obedience. Begrudging submission. Some of you parents know what it's like to have your kids obey, but they don't want to do it. <laughs> if they had any other option, they would not do it. And so they stomp their way into the kitchen and wash their dishes and they're making noise. And yes, in one sense, it's good. It's better to obey than disobey. But wouldn't you rather prefer your kids do it in love? Doesn't the motivation behind their actions matter to you as a parent? God is the same way. God is concerned about the heart of the good work, not just the work itself. There's an illustration that I've I've used this story before, and so if you've been at Keystone, I don't know, it's probably eight years ago, so probably forgotten by now. Uh, There's a story by Charles Spurgeon that is going to get us to consider motivation here. Uh, the story that he tells, it's called The Horse and the Carrot. And so I would encourage you, you can follow along up on the screens. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore... I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, and went home rejoicing. Second scene. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, "My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what would you give, or what would uh, what if you gave the king something better?" The next day the nobleman came before the king, and as he was uh, and, and he was leading a handsome black stallion, he bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or will ever. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener gave the king the carrot. He gave the king the carrot. The carrot was for him. The nobleman gave the king a horse. Not really for the king, but for himself. Do you see the selfish selfish nature? On the surface, both are giving gifts. Both are being generous. Both are giving even their best. The quality of these sacrifices, though different in type, are, you know, exalted. The difference between these two men is the heart of the giver. And let me tell you, it is easy to do good things with selfish motives. In fact, we train ourselves all the time to obey and do good things for selfish motives, where we give to get. See, that's a selfish motive, that it's possible for you to do righteous, good things on the surface. They look wonderful. They look sacrificial. They look generous. But if you barrow, barrow you know, dig down deep enough, you realize there's probably some sort of selfish motive going on. My statement that I want to make underneath that heading is God cares about the quality of the gift and the character of the giver. And so I'd love for us to think about the motivations that go on in your own heart, go on in our heart. The cynic in me is skeptical of so many good things, and I think here's why. I I think it's because I recognize how often my good deeds can be tainted by selfish motivations. Selfish motivations of pride. Selfish motivations of fear, really in fifth grade, I memorized the most Bible verses in my entire Sunday school class. No applause? You know why I did it. Yeah, you shouldn't applaud that. You know why I did it? Uh, Because every verse got a uh, candy bar. And uh, I wanted to prove to everybody in the class that I was smarter and better than them. Get my name right there at the top. Maximum number of verses. What was the motivation in my heart? Reward? Pride. In high school? Didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't have sex, didn't do drugs. I'm not just saying that because my parents are in here. (laughs) They didn't do it. Why? Because I was so honorable as a high schooler, such a God-loving, Jesus-exalting young man. I think if I'm honest, I never had the opportunity. And if I had the opportunity, I can tell you that I was so scared of getting caught and having maybe my reputation ruined, or some sort of consequence, or being considered one of those kids that I, I didn't give in. And okay, don't. I praise God. Praise God that I didn't fall victim to the kinds of temptations a teenager's face. But I'm not bragging and boasting on that record, because I know that the motivation in my heart was as selfish as Cain's. I think in some ways Cain is like the older brother, the original, OG, original older brother. In the New Testament, we have the story of uh, the prodigal son. You know who the prodigal son had for a brother? Cain. Same sort of deal. Neither Cain nor this elder brother actually loved God. They were only using God and doing good deeds to get God's things. They didn't love God. Abel, Abel made his sacrifice by faith, in faith. I tell you, when you make a sacrifice in faith, when you give the best and the first, what you are doing is you're showing that, God, I love you for you. I'm going to give my best. And I'm going to give my first. I'm going to give the first of my crops. I don't, or I'm going to give the first of my um, herd. And so if, I, if I, my flock has no other sheep this year, even if that's the case, Lord, I'm doing it because I trust you. Come what may, I know you're going to take care of me. Because if you don't have the motivation of faith when difficulty comes... Your genuine heart's motives are going to be exposed. And so that moves us on to Cain's heart. What was Cain's reaction when Abel, uh, Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his was not? Verse 5 Cain was very angry and dejected. Some translations will say that his face fell, he was depressed disappointed, is angry and disappointed. And I want us to consider what happens in your heart when you feel rejected like Cain. I think everyone in here in some ways knows what it's like to be rejected. I mean, you can be overlooked at work for a promotion that you think you earned, you put in the extra time, hoping to get a raise, boss. In some ways, doesn't accept your work and accept someone else's. That's disappointing. What goes on in your heart? Husbands, you work a 12 hour job, come home exhausted, and as soon as you walk in the door, there's no one there to greet you. Wife, I don't know, she's busy doing something. What goes on in your heart when you were expecting a grand welcome and you get nothing? Wives, what happens when you spend all day? cleaning the house, taking care of the kids, preparing dinner, your husband comes home and the only thing that he notices is that his laundry isn't done yet. In some ways, you're being rejected. It's like, what am I? High schoolers, high school girls, making the decision to not dress provocatively in order to get attention. Doing good deed, doing what's right, what goes on in your heart when that action doesn't produce the results that you're hoping to get? What happens when no boys actually do give you any attention? What happens when you try out for the team? Don't make it but the co- coach's son does. What happens when you do what you think you ought to do and God does not give you what you think that you deserve? I think your reaction to that is going to reveal your heart. I think your reaction is going to reveal your heart. Uh, I think that's my main, main point underneath that. Suffering is going to expose your heart. I think there are four responses, four possible responses, when difficulty comes, that will reveal your heart. Let's use the example for Cain. For Cain could have responded. Let's... let's in humility if Cain would have responded oh okay Cain Abel's sacrifice who accepted mine was not I wonder what I can do differently next time I wonder, I wonder if, if God can I get a second chance because I, I, I want to be better that response is a humble response because it recognizes the fact that maybe Cain is part of the problem maybe maybe Cain is part of the problem maybe the problem isn't just out there Maybe it's not Abel's fault. Maybe it's not God's fault. You know, maybe the problem, a humble response when things don't go your way might be, you know what, maybe, maybe I need to really pick up my game at work. Maybe I need to consider how I am treating my kids. Maybe I need to, and a humble response is going to consider that, well, it's going to remember that we're a sinner and we're capable of folly, and so we can think maybe if things aren't going well, maybe it's partly my fault. A faith-filled or a trusting response might not be to try to make things better. It might just be to say, you know what? I did my best, and I'm going to trust that if I didn't get that job, God is going to take care of me. I know God loves me, and I'm disappointed that things didn't happen the way that I thought they would. It's disappointing. I'm I'm, I'm saddened by it, but I'm not destroyed by it. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to take the next step in faith. You know what? Maybe there's a better job out there, and God is saving the best for me. And maybe there's not. But either way, I trust God is going to take care of me. It's a humble and trusting response. Versus Cain's. Cain's is full of pride. It's full of despondency. It's full of bitterness, resentment, or at least the grounds for it. And so when difficulty comes your way, I think it would be wise for us as a church to consider what's going on in my heart. Am I getting upset and who am I getting upset at? What's this tell me about the condition of my heart that I am so angry, so bitter because if we don't deal with those seeds that are planted in our hearts. I think what we can see what happens when they grow. Last section here is Cain's response, Cain's reaction. One day Cain suggested to his brother, "Let's go out to the fields." And while they were in the fields, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, I've read that already before. Um, and on the surface, does it seem petty to you? Does it seem like, does it seem like Cain overreacted a bit? He killed him. Lured him out in the field where no one could see. Killed him. And when God comes, cold, dead eyes. Am I my brother's guardian? Am I my brother's keeper? He sort of can sense a bit of Cain's attitude in this whole thing. How could this happen? What could have been done? You might be tempted to just label Cain a psycho. He is some kind of demented, perverted, twisted, maniac monster. Let me tell you, as, as long as you respond to Cain in disgust or disregard, as long as you don't see that Cain's sin could have been your sin, you don't understand the capacity of your own heart for evil. Until you understand Cain's sin. You don't understand. There's um, some quotes from uh, authors who have written about evil. Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn uh, writing on the uh, Soviet gulags, these work camps under Stalin's regime. saw insane atrocities. And after seeing the atrocities that his... In some ways, um, compatriots would have committed against each other. He says there's a, there's a line between good and evil and it cuts through the heart of every human being. A line between good and evil cuts between or cuts through the heart of every human being. Philip Zimbardo, does anybody recognize that name? It's a psychologist who performed an experiment back in 1970 called the uh, uh, Stanford Prison Experiment, considering um, putting putting students into uh, an environment and seeing how things would work out if a group of people had power and a group of people didn't. And the study was cut short after six days after the students started to literally torture their Pierce, And he said, as a result of this study, any person can, be, can become evil. Matthew 19. This is the source that I'm really going to rely on. It's nice to have uh, people in the culture who recognize our capacity for evil. It's better to have the Scriptures reference here. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. Where do these things come from? They come from in your heart. Cain is not a psycho. If you're ready to call Cain a psycho, you're ready to be calling me a psycho. Or yourself a psycho. Because as long as we continue to look at disgust and try to call them something other than what we are, we won't recognize our own capacity for sin. And that's the first step in realizing the power that we have to overcome the evil in our hearts. We need to recognize the kind of capacity that we have for evil. If we don't understand sin, Cain, sin, we won't understand our own capacity for evil. Um, the big idea that I have for us as we close this morning is that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart when it comes to Christianity. Christianity is not about simple behavior modification we 're not just about doing what 's good and resisting what 's evil. This series honestly, is going to address how can we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, mature towards more obedience, mature to more righteousness. In some ways, what can we do to avoid sin and move towards righteousness? But it's important that we address the heart. If we don't address the heart as a church, it might be possible that on the exterior we'd be full of all kinds of righteous deeds. We'd be full of righteousness, good deeds, sacrifices, offerings. But if the root motivation, the heart is a selfish motivation with fear and pride moving us along. I don't want to be that kind of church. We'd be a church of zombies, people who look like they're alive on the outside but are on the inside full of death and disease, festering and rotting away. We sang a song at a church that I used to go to before I came to Keystone. It was called uh, Power in the Blood. We sang about this line. Here it is. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you or evil a victory win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? Would you do service to Jesus your king? Would you live daily his praises to sing? There's power. Power. Wonder working power in the precious blood of the lamb. That was a Anthem at the church for me growing up. Tell me, what does that mean? <laughs> There's power, wonder working power in the precious blood of Lamb. How do I get that power? How do I get that power? I don't know. It sounds a little like witchcraft to me. I need to go searching around for the, the blood of Jesus, and if I mix it with this or that, I might, you know, take on superhuman powers like the Hulk. I might is that is that Do I need to rub it on? Uh, Do I need to diffuse it? Christianity has truths that we convey in songs that if we never understand what it actually means to say that there's power in the blood of Jesus, we might as well not sing them because we don't really know what we're singing about. I think on one hand, we understand that the the blood of Jesus does free us from the penalty of sin. It washes away sin. It, It really cleanses us. in some ways we know that the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ saves sinners. What I want us to consider during this series is how does the gospel and the blood of Jesus give us the power to be shaped in this world. Not just saved from sin, but shaped from sin. Saved from the consequences of sin. Being saved from the power of sin. And there's one line from this text that I think helps us get at what's going on. Did you notice the, uh, the text in uh, this last verse I read that Abel's blood is crying out to God? The, Hebrew, uh, the author of Hebrews picks up on that theme here in this section. and says, you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates a new covenant, uh, the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood. What about this blood? This blood which speaks forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. When we say that the blood of Jesus Christ gives us power, power to save, yes, amen, yes, power to forgive, but Jesus' blood is better than Abel's blood. Abel's blood cries out for justice. It cries out for do what's right. It cries out someone needs to pay for the evil that they commit. The blood of Jesus Christ speaks not a message of condemnation but a message of forgiveness. This is a better message and if we as a church could wrap our minds and our hearts around the truth that though we be evil like Cain God's grace covers our sin. That is a radically New motivation for obedience. The blood of Jesus Christ destroys pride because it says that you were so wicked that Jesus needed to die to forgive you. And it removes all fear. There is therefore now no condemnation. We don't need to fear to motivate us, we don't need pride to motivate us. What do we have to motivate us? The blood, which reminds us of God's grace. And so as we give, we can give to God and give to others, not because we need to get anything. God has already given it to us. I want us to embrace that truth. And Father, we ask this morning that you would have your spirit speak to us. That just as you came to Cain, you might come to us. And Lord, I pray for those who would love to experience the freedom from sin, overcome the power of their pride. God, I pray, Lord, that you would show them how to access the power that's in the blood of Christ. I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.